You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. My guest today is Ben Jones. He is the author of the book we'll be focusing on quite a bit, Eisenhower's Guerrillas, The Jedbergs, The Maquis, and The Liberation of France, published by Oxford University Press. Ben himself served in the U.S. Air Force for some 23 years in the U.S., Guam, Germany, and the U.K. He has served two years in Afghanistan, first as an advisor at their military academy in 2009, and second on General Petraeus' staff, then later General Allen's staff in Kabul, coordinating with the Afghan security ministries for the transition of security from the coalition to the Afghan government. He holds a PhD in modern European history from the University of Kansas. He's a member of the Department of History at the U.S. Air Force Academy, where he taught courses on European history, unconventional warfare, and Afghanistan. And he is currently the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Dakota State University in Madison, South Dakota. Dakota State, I should mention, is one of 13 undergraduate programs in the nation named by the National Security Agency, the NSA, as a center of academic excellence for its cyber operations major. So, Dr. Ben Jones, welcome. Thank you. To our uh, podcast. It's great to be here. I think it's going to be a fascinating coverage of a subject that is in the news as late as this morning, and probably there's late breaking news this afternoon yeah. uh, on our the involvement that we've had for so many years now in the Middle East, particularly. Right. <clears throat> One of the notes that you strike, I think it's a fascinating book. I have never read uh, such a detailed account of what actual Jedburg teams were doing yeah. and the issues that they were encountering. There are almost more issues and difficulties than more operations if you got down to it. <laughs> right, right. But one of the things that you touch on, and clearly you're knowledgeable on it, you've taught about it. At one point, you talk about irregular warfare or guerrilla warfare as Americans' way of America's way of war. Could yeah. you expand a bit on that? Well, sure. I think uh, you know since the colonial days in 1607, we've been fighting uh, Native Americans one way, shape, or form, and so that. That notion of fighting an irregular force that's using um, sabotage uh, and and uh, ambush tactics 
is something that uh, colonial militias and then later the U.S. Army were constantly doing. But this gets very little kind of press. And uh, the thing that drew me to this topic about the Second World War was inside the Second World War, there are all kinds of guerrilla wars going on all the time. And the United States, we really have no memory of that. When you think of World War II, you think of thousands of aircraft and boats and millions of soldiers and so forth and service, but you don't really think about if you had been in an occupied nation such as France, to them it was a guerrilla war. Uh, Philippines, uh, China, Yugoslavia, Greece, and so forth. The World War II that those nations remember uh, is just filled with those types of things about guerrilla warfare and spies and intrigue and underground movements and so forth. So this is, this is America and Britain uh, attempting to lash into that and the hopes of exploiting it. Yeah. Well, I get that, what was going on in those countries. Right. But wh- where I'm trying to go a little farther is you describe guerrilla warfare, right. regular warfare, as America's, way of, America's yeah. way of war. Right. Now, not, not just you know, where, we might imp- where it might have been employed in World War II, yeah. but it, right down through history, I get right. a sense that you feel this has been... One of, if not our greatest strength, is waging irregular warfare. Yeah, I don't know that it's a strength, but it's something we continually do and then we forget about it because we think the United States Army institutionally often would prefer to fight the larger war with divisions and so forth. But we are constantly, since colonial days, fighting guerrilla warfare and using those tactics and learning and so forth. I think uh, the footnote that you might be referring to there is the, as America's first way of war is kind of a riff off a friend of mine's book, John Grenier, who I taught with at the Air Force Academy. It's, it, it, it plays on that first way of war, this notion that uh, from the colonial days uh, to the present, that this way of fighting has been something that we've constantly had to do despite the fact that we really did not want to do it. Yeah. Well, certainly we take some of the major encounters, look at our own civil war. Yes, sakes, which there's there's tons of, of guerrilla skirmishes yes, all over the country. All over the country. Uh, yeah. I just heard about uh, well the the Kansas Missouri border territory, uh, parts of Kentucky, parts of Tennessee, just constant bushwhackers and jayhawkers and and all that going on in the Civil War. Uh, Missouri is Missouri looks like Bosnia of the 1990s and during the Civil War. I'm going to ask you a simplistic question. Have we gotten any better at it? And, and I'll go as we progress through yeah. your book. Yeah. And we eventually get out of, out of France and out of Europe. Right. I'll, I'd like to bring us up to the present sure. day. But what's, a, what's your quick answer as I ask you that now? Yeah, I, I don't think so because we tend to have to relearn the lessons. Um, one of the reasons that I realized that this book needed to be written, as I was starting the... the um, heavy research into this book, two other books came out about the Jedbergs. And this is the, the death knell for every dissertation student, right? And he wants to be the first to break into this. But I realized quickly that what those two books did, while really great writing and a lot of great uh, uh, research was done in those books, they focused on the stories of the teams themselves. And they did not really explain the French. And they did not really explain what Eisenhower uh, hope that the Jedburgh teams would do. And so I thought, well, there's still a lot of room for me to run here. So I continued on with the research and that and try to, because I think that's the big question is how are we going to get better? How are we going to get better at the, if this is our way of war? How do we improve on it? And so the, the, my hope with the book is that people who are practitioners and, and interested in this kind of thing and policymakers and the wider public would begin to know that 
that this type of war is, is very different from conventional warfare. We don't understand it, but we need to so we can improve on it. So you, I, I almost could see you using the tagline lessons learned or lessons still to be learned. Lessons still to be nature. learned, right, right. Now, one of the points that you make early on and you stick to all through the book mm -hmm. is that Eisenhower was the first commander of a coalition to try and wage guerrilla war planning, right. that is to wage conventional war, which right. is what he was doing. Right but planning to use the, his irregulars, the guerrillas, right. with that conventional force. In right. other words, to, to have them work together instead of just deploying one right. separately or unilaterally. Right. He inherits that idea from the British. Uh, Major General Colin Gubbins in the SOE conceives of this largely inspired by what he had read about uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Lawrence's campaign with Allenby in the Middle East from the, from the First World War. And due to modern uh, 1940s-era technology, the radio and heavy-lift aircraft, they're able to have the connectivity between the guerrilla forces and the regular forces that Allenby and Lawrence never could have in, in Arabia or, or Palestine. And so the SOE conceives of this notion. Uh, radio and encryption is a big part of what they're doing. It has to be connected. And it's built in from, it's baked in the cake, really, from the get-go. So when Eisenhower arrives to take command of, of uh, Schaaf, it's already a part of the plan with the planning element that had been planning for a year and a half uh, prior to his arrival. So uh, that was really kind of a gift to him. But he knew, he sees that the biggest problem with um, this is that the internal resistance is going to have to come along. And you can't just parachute that in. And so he knows, after conversations with de Gaulle prior to arriving in London, he has a chat with de Gaulle uh, in Algiers, and they kind of come to terms. They, they respect one another, and, and de Gaulle respects uh, Eisenhower's role as a, as a coalition commander. And Eisenhower treats him as uh, the head of a provisional government, which I argue that de Gaulle is. And uh, de Gaulle un respects that kind of uh, complacent diplomatic military recognition that Eisenhower function, uh, you know, uh, gives him functionally in that regard. And then he goes off to London, and he gets read in, I suppose, in a series of, of briefings about the current planning and the state of the current planning, and he immediately wants to bring in a French general to command the resistance into his headquarters. This is akin to today what uh, special forces would call a siege of or a siege of a coalition joint special operations task force. That's a term that's since come to, into use, uh, but that wasn't anything that was around then. And so Eisenhower has to invent it. Uh, and he, he, he realizes he wants to bring a French general in on this, and he tries to do that, and that's where the problems begin. And he, but he wants to bring in the French general specifically so that the French that will be used in this force can identify with someone in the command who is French. Yes, yes. Most of the guerrillas are the Maquis, are the French themselves. Yes. And the Jedbergs and these other teams that he's going to send in, their primary function is liaison. Yeah. That's what they're told. They're not going to be blowing up bridges. They're not going to be uh, running a lot of ambushes, although they might wind up doing all of those things. But their primary function was to communicate to the Maquis in that area what Eisenhower needed them to do. Okay, now there's some terms we're using yeah. uh, that probably aren't 
wholly familiar with some of the yeah. uh, listeners. So I just want to pause for a moment. Sure. You mentioned Shape Headquarters. Yeah. Could you expand Shape itself? Yeah. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces. Um, that was the coalition command that Eisenhower uh, ran, uh, granted him by the Combined Chiefs of Staff, which is an organization of the British High Command and the American High Command. Uh, so it was largely an American-British enterprise, although there's Poles, there's emigres from all over Europe that are in the staff and around London and so forth um, uh, as a part of that, but primarily Britain uh, and the United States. And the Free French are a part of that thing that he wants to bring in. You, now, you, you make a, a distinction in the book, and I think we might pause and do that, mm -hmm. uh, between, <clears throat> as you discuss the French resistance forces, you refer to the Maquis, right. you refer to the, the, the Free French, right. and you refer to the group you did just now, which was the, uh, not the, well, it was the resistance, the resistance, right, right. and the Maquis, and the Free French. Right. Could you just distinguish now? Yeah, that? thanks this for asking This is the French that. side now, yes. yes. Within the French side, of course, the <clears throat> French government falls in June of 1940. And as you can imagine what might happen to any country when their government falls, and then they reconstitute another government, which is really got a gun to its head. I mean, the Nazis are in charge. And so immediately there's legitimacy concerns with that. De Gaulle is in London. He finds himself in London at the time uh, when he finds out that, that now General Pétain, who was a preeminent French character, had helped save the nation in the First World War and really had a lot of credibility with the French people. And he was standing up what becomes a collaborationist government, or what we call the Vichy government. Most French were relieved that the fighting was over. Most French were willing to grant General Pétain a lot of political leeway and saying, you know what, if the old man says this is the right thing to do, then it must be the right thing to do, and he'll, he'll make sure it's okay. And so for the first year, year and a half to two years, there's a lot of expectation, and Pétain is telling the French people, you know, we're going to do a deal with Germany. Germany clearly will win the war. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Germans were going to win the war. Um, and it's best to be on this winning side. Uh, but as, the, as Stalingrad happens, as the Allies have success in North Africa, the Mediterranean, and Italy, uh, that proves to be something that's very clearly not going to happen, and that the British and the Americans will win the war. And so more and more people begin to first doubt Pétain, and in the fall of 1941 and into 1942, there are kind of nascent resistance groups inside France sprouting up. A lot of them young men, led by other young men in their mid-20s or late-20s, who had been in the army, maybe escaped from a POW camp um, after the Germans had, had captured them. And they come back to France, and they're very angry at all this. And they begin to kind of form these little political groups or combat groups and so forth. They want to achieve certain objectives. And it's a great, it's a huge difficulty in organizing all of this into one thing. And it takes, really, until uh, the summer of 1943 when de Gaulle, who's outside of France the whole, this whole time, um, is able to pull it off uh, despite the best uh, efforts of Franklin Roosevelt to try and keep him from taking power. Well, let's come back to Roosevelt, but let me yeah. just for a moment pause sure. on the French. Yeah. The overall yeah. French resistance was the resistance. Right. The resistance. The resistance is kind of a generic term yes. that, that this means these, this uh, political movement to resist Vichy. 
to resist. Vichy again, the, yes. General Patan's uh, government. General Patan's government. The Maquis is a term that was used by the, uh, it means the Corsican scrub brush. In other words, it's kind of the weeds, you know, that grow up and you can't get rid of this stuff. Uh, and so that, that was an appellation that, that started to happen and they just kind of took to it. So when I say in the book the Maquis, I mean typically a unit of five to 40 guys that are armed a little bit and they're intent on organizing around some type of combat action. So I try to use the term Maquis to mean fighters, essentially guerrilla fighters who are armed to some level and are out to do violence against the Germans uh, or the Vichy of, government. Sort of groups that have sprung up locally and want right, to do something. Right. You make a point uh, at one point in the book that uh, I think it was General Patin, they were actually drafting young men in France to right. send them to Germany to, to work to, in factories, not to yeah. concentration camps, but to work right. in factories. And, right. and there was a lot of resi resistance to this, yeah. uh, which led some of the young men, rather than do that, to go ahead and join right. the Maquis. Or the, it fuels the resistance. It fuels yeah. the Maquis. They wound yeah. up being... That, that was the joke, was that was the, the biggest yeah. recruiter. Yeah. Uh, let's turn for a moment to one of the most extraordinary figures to emerge during that period and, and certainly in your yeah. book, and that's General de Gaulle. Right. General de Gaulle, I think you mentioned, was the most junior general in he's the army. Is that yes. correct? He's the most junior general in the French army. He had been advocating for armored warfare and mobile warfare throughout the 1930s. He had been uh, kind of set aside because of this, and, um, and his promotion slowed down. So... I don't know about his age and so forth, but he, he was, as the war started, he, he was just put on the, the um, general officer list and given a uh, brigade of tanks to go do what he had always said he would do uh, in the 1930s. And now that the combat has started and he had some success, he knew about um, wider efforts and how to organize the army in a wider effort for armored warfare. And so he was pulled into the cabinet. Uh, and so... The president, the French president, who now is up against it and trying to fight a war uh, and, and an invading force in this country, is, pulls this, this junior general out of the French army who everybody realizes hey, he'd been right all along. And uh, now, OK, he's going to give him a junior spot in the government, uh, which would be, I guess, uh, similar to one of our assistant secretaries of defense and told to organize armor warfare for the French army writ large. Uh, and so he's on an airplane on his way to London to, to get more tanks from the British when he gets to London and he hears that the government has fallen. And, and then he goes and he makes a speech on the BBC, which hardly anyone hears, but nevertheless, they can, he can always say that he was a resistor from the first moment, that he never collaborated. And this is the greatest part of his credibility with a lot of the Maquis, who, who themselves probably took a while to come around to the fact that that France was going to lose if they stayed with the Germans and that it was um, against French national interest to be uh, siding with the Germans and collaborating. Yeah. And I know you make a point of, in a sense, trying to get inside his head. The realization that dawned on him that he would have to take a leadership role. Right. He, 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 in effect, almost looked around to see who now would lead. Right. I mean, this is not something that's natural for a one-star general to do, to angle to become president of his country. So he, he's trying, and, and uh, over the course of the next two years, there's a lot of um, former French politicians who have left the country. They're in North Africa. They're in the United States. 
and they are taking themselves out of the running, or they themselves don't have the credibility with the internal French, the emerging internal French resistance to take control because they either, one of two things, either they messed it up in the 1930s and they just don't have any credibility as a political leader, or they advocated at one point or another for collaboration. And that uh, shoots them in the foot as far as the French resistance are concerned, that they just don't have any credibility to lead in the future. Let me ask you just, if you can, in in a few words, to give our listeners a sense of the dynamic between General de Gaulle, Mm -hmm. Winston Churchill, Eisenhower, and Roosevelt, because that really pervades the entire book, yeah. and it pervades how the res- yeah. how the Jedbergs and the uh, we haven't gotten to the Jedbergs yet, right. but it it re- it is such a pervasive thing. This this uh, almost dysfunction oh, at the very senior level, yeah. and the effects it has on the men and women who simply want to go and fight. Right? Could you could you just give us a sense of that dynamic? Sure. Well, when when De Gaulle shows up, uh, the British government decides to recognize him as the head of the Free French which is a diplomatically nice way of saying that we will recognize you as the head of this group, but certainly not the head of any French provisional government and certainly not a a leader of all of France. Uh, Roosevelt takes a completely different tack. He has a lot of um, people who are informing him about de Gaulle, uh, and he sees de Gaulle as uh, somebody who's going to be very dictatorial. He has some people telling him that de Gaulle is a communist, which really, quite frankly, is just kind of silly because he's a, he's a devout Catholic. So the fact that he would be a communist, but there's, there's hints that the Communist Party is following de Gaulle, and so Roosevelt's just concerned that he'll be too dictatorial. Roosevelt wants an election to happen, but of course an election can't happen. So Roosevelt meets him uh, at the Casablanca conference. Roosevelt likes a very senior four-star general uh, who's running North Africa at the time, uh, General Girard, and he wants Giraud to handle French politics. Uh, and Giraud is very happy to, to be told what to do, and this makes Roosevelt very happy. De Gaulle, of course, senses that this is just a trick and, and, and really um, gets to the essence of the matter, that, that, that what the French want in the war is their sovereignty back. And de Gaulle understands that immediately and is a symbol of that to so many French people. Uh, Giraud is not a symbol of that. Uh, and so when the two meet at a press conference in Casablanca, um, it's kind of a stiff meeting. And de Gaulle is new to all this. You know, he's not a head of state. He had never been a head of state. He wasn't good at handling the press. There he is with Winston Churchill and Roosevelt had been president for uh, eight years by that point. And uh, he's really trying to sort out his place in this. And he, he says to Roosevelt, as he had said to an American admiral a few weeks prior to this, who was very impressed with this and set up this meeting, um, that, that in French history, uh, disasters had happened before and that French had fallen upon hard times, but there were always characters, there were always people who rose to the occasion, like Joan of Arc, he says, and that perhaps at this point in French history, he could be such a person. But the translation is mangled, and Roosevelt thinks that de Gaulle thinks that de Gaulle is Joan of Arc, and for the rest of his life, Roosevelt just thinks that he's an arrogant, kind of crazy man, and he can't be trusted. Uh, and so this sets off, this little misunderstanding really sets them off down a path that they never recover from, the two of them. And so it, it becomes kind of a, 
uh, ha uh, hang up, as we would say today, of, of an inability of FDR to understand what the French want, what the, uh, what the British want, uh, which there's a lot of divergence, too, uh, between the United States and Britain that uh, kind of comes through in the book from time to time. Uh, so we understand quite well what de Gaulle wanted. Yeah. And I think that, that didn't the American side, uh, Roosevelt say specifically, uh, see Eisenhower as becoming something of a, one, uh, of a governor of France yeah. once they drove the Germans out. Right. Now, something like MacArthur in Japan, exactly. General MacArthur. Yes. And so it would be administered until it could have its own sovereignty right. or whatever. Right. The British more or less went along with that, did they not? In other words, having yeah. a military commander, probably Eisenhower. Right. In what way did they differ from the American side? That is the British. They have yeah. their own aims. Well, the British and the French both have large empires. And after the war, they see themselves maintaining them. Uh, so I think most of the differences between Britain and the United States come about because Britain sees it's maintaining its empire after the war, and Roosevelt does not see empires lasting beyond the Second World War. Uh, and so, in fact, we, we had plans to give up the Philippines, but the Japanese interfered and stopped that. So we were on our way to, to turning the Philippines back over to its own sovereign nation, and he wants that to serve as a model for the rest of, of the world uh, who have their empires, and the French and the British are those that he thinks are... Uh, you know, the age of empires is over, as, as Roosevelt would want, and uh, that's why he's angling for the UN. And the British and the French both see this as a threat. They both see, no, uh, after the war is over, we, we plan on maintaining our empire. Certainly Churchill does, and, and de Gaulle does too. And so that, the two of them probably had that in common, that, that kind of keep the United States out of our business. Um, De Gaulle sees the UN that, that uh, later in the war uh, they meet at the White House. And de Gaulle sees in that conversation, he writes about in his memoirs very vividly, that Roosevelt was painting a future of constant American intervention. Interesting. Yeah. You've given us a sense of the French resistance, that is, uh -huh. the groups. And we should have some sense now of the Americans and the British. Right. Why don't we start with the American... You know, what was a Jedburg? Sure. Tell us about the Jedburg. Yeah. What is a Jedburg? How did yeah. they come about? Well, the Jedburgs were a British idea. They, they have a big uh, war game in 1942 in preparation for the invasion, which they think will happen in 1943. And their special operations executive planners um, are out there with a Canadian division running a huge war game. And they realize that, uh, and they get permission to form out these, they want to have links to resistance movements in the enemy's interior. And so they come up with this idea and they war game it out during this big war game. And they realize a few things from that. You know, they write up an after action report and they realize they need a embedded special forces detachment in every numbered army to better handle that at, at a at not the Schaefe level, which would be too big, but at a numbered army level. So at the Bradley level, at the Montgomery level, and at what becomes the Patton level when his, uh, his army is activated later in August. Um, they also need a native speaker. It's not good enough to have your Oxford French. You need to be a native speaker because you're going to be dealing with all kinds of dialects that are going to be hard to pick up on. And a lot of uneducated young men who don't have a lot of schooling, and they, they've just got a lot of street French. 
So having a native speaker was key. Well, that was huge because when the British decided that, okay, we need French officers on these Jedburgh teams, we need Dutch officers on these Jedburgh teams, and that's a whole other political layer of complication. And when you're involving another nation, then you get all of their politics and all of their aims and all of their uh, baggage that goes along with that. And that winds up being something that the French want to do. The French want to contribute officers to this. And in fact, they want to take it over, which I argue ultimately they do take over the Jetburg operations. Um, but the British, so out of those war games come these ideas that, that these teams will be liaison to rear area resistance groups so that numbered armies on the front can communicate to, the, to those interior areas behind enemy lines what's going on. What bridges do they want blown? What bridges do they want maintained? What headquarters of the enemies do they want uh, hampered and so forth? Okay, now you described the, the British uh, uh, Special Operations Executive. Right. The SOE. Yes. Which was the their their sabotage, their, their right. behind the lines right. organization as well. Right. We have not touched on yet right. the American side and the father of American irregular warfare in our times, yeah. and that's General Wild Bill Donovan. Right. Could you tell us something about Wild Bill Donovan, yeah. the creation of OSS, mm -hmm. and then his role yeah. with the British in dealing with de Gaulle sure. to mount the Jedburgh operations? Yeah. Well, Donovan was a, uh, an amazing man. You think of people who could have been president. Uh, I think Donovan, if things had gone differently, uh, Donovan may have been a, a, a president of the United States. Just an amazing intellect, tons of energy, uh, and a great imagination, and un unimaginable leadership skills. Uh, the OSS veterans that I've always met, they all admire him uh, 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 amazingly. Uh, they just think he's just an amazing guy. Because he would give them the, the to do what they thought was necessary to do. And they appreciated that faith and confidence that they had from the boss. Let me just interrupt you for a moment. Sure. I think we need to talk about sure. OSS, yeah. what it means, how it got created, right. and Donovan's role, right. including his own background. Right. Well, Donovan fought in the First World War. He took a, it was part of the Rainbow Division, which was a division of National Guard units. Uh, he went over to France, uh, part of that. He was lieutenant colonel, I believe. Uh, winds up winning the Medal of Honor in combat uh, against Germany. And he does so because he, in that, in that uh, two or three day event in October, September, October of 1918, so it's just, you know, the war's almost over. They don't know that, but um, he winds up being, losing communication with his uh, senior leaders and he has to make decisions and he makes them. Uh, one of his decisions is to cancel an attack which you wouldn't think of, of Donovan doing. But he, he sees us going nowhere. He, he gets out ahead of uh, his supporting uh, units to his right and to his left. He tries to make some hay with um, advancement against the German lines, does so, but he sees this is, this is uh, falling apart on him, and he decides to cancel the attack. And he tells people later, you know, and he gets wounded during this. So as he's getting hauled off the battlefield, Bleeding, he's commanding, giving orders, and so forth, and being very, um, you know, he's got his lieutenant colonel on, and so forth. He is uh, uh, decorated for that ultimately, 
it takes a while to do that, but but uh, the powers that be after the war awarded the Medal of Honor for uh, two types of courage that I think are really amazing. One is the common type of courage in the face of fire, right? We're used to stories of guys running into attacks and so forth. While it's not common, it's, it's the thing that we think of when we think of bravery. But he also had the courage of kind of a moral fortitude and a sense of what his role was at the time and to do the right thing in the absence of orders. And so that's the thing that I think he brings to the OSS is, is that experience from the First World War that he then wants his uh, junior officers and sergeants who are at the end of the radio and don't have um, contact to be able to talk to Eisenhower or just the, the layer up because communications might be bad and they've got a problem to solve and they need to take the initiative to solve it. Okay, I, now we have to, we've got Donovan. Yeah. All right. Now we have to go to the creation of the OSS, right. his role and right. what it was. Right. He, he, he knew Roosevelt from law school. They went to law school in Columbia, but they weren't best of buddies. Um, Donovan winds up after the war uh, doing very well in a law practice in New York City during the Depression, uh, becomes fabulously wealthy, gets involved in elective politics, runs for governor just as Roosevelt is leaving the governor's chair in New York. He runs for that seat uh, when Roosevelt's becoming president of the United States in 1932, and he loses. So he's a Republican, uh, ha- having lost elective politics in New York. Um, he decides, and his wife tells him, we're never doing that again. So he wants to get involved in, in politics. Oh, and he had been in the uh, Coolidge administration in the Justice Department. So before his uh, law practice in New York. So he, ambitious, smart, uh, wealthy, connected, and so forth, and, and, knows, uh, and has now a friend, Frank Knox, who's Secretary of the Navy. Roosevelt, in 1940, is casting about for a uh, Secretary of War from the Republican Party, and Donovan thinks... I've got a pretty good chance of getting that. And Knox is advocating for that. But Roosevelt, uh, very wisely, I think, picks Henry Stimson, who was a grand old man in in, uh, the United States at the time, had been Secretary of War before, had been Secretary of State. And and so Donovan fills another need that Roosevelt thinks he needs, someone to centrally manage intelligence for him. Uh, And that while Roosevelt is very shrewd in how he manages his global intelligence networks and so forth, he wants somebody to do this for the United States government. And there's a lot of resistance to this from the War Department, from the Navy, from the FBI. You can imagine the political infighting that might go on with J. Edgar Hoover and so forth, and uh, who's running the FBI. And so Donovan gets uh, less than a kind of a global intelligence network that he wants. But he gets he has to constantly fight to keep it. And over the course of the war, he grows OSS into a 13,000 person um, entity that is run out of and funded basically from the president's emergency wartime funding. This gives him a lot of latitude, but it's also, in my view, the greatest uh, weakness in the OSS, because when there's no legal authority for the OSS, uh, the president has to want you. And when Roosevelt dies and Truman becomes becomes president. Truman does not like Donovan, and so he, he ends it. Uh, so the greatest, you know, we think of the, the flexibility that the OSS had during the war due to Donovan's leadership and so forth. Uh, he really was, uh, in my view, I think it's, it doesn't quite pass muster because it, uh, it's not a permanent fixture. 
Um, and I was surprised in researching what the OSS did. He, you know, he had great intelligence networks all over the world. He had guys in Cairo, he had guys in Switzerland, he had guys in North Africa, the Philippines, uh, China, and so forth, feeding him great intelligence. All he would do, which I think today is amazing considering the national intelligence estimate and the presidential daily brief that, that goes on and this kind of finishing the product, right? He would take this 40-page uh, assessment from a man at the station in Algiers, slap a cover note on there, and send it to the White House and say, uh, write a note on there to the president's personal secretary. I think the president ought to see this. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence that FDR spent a lot of time with all this stuff, but he got it all at raw intelligence from an analyst in the field, which I just think is, is astonishing. But Donovan, we now has now brought about the, the, the acceptance of the OSS. Right. So you have the American OSS. Yeah. You have the British SOE and you have de Gaulle. Right. And his... his uh, uh, Central o Bureau of Intelligence in Action. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Know, his overview. Yeah. Clearly, uh, there was value placed on OSS. Uh, right. Your book consists largely of assessing, evaluating a number of the uh, operations that were conducted in France, particularly right. during World War II. How then did the such close collaboration come between OSS and the SOE and de Gaulle yeah. in your in France. in France. In other words, excluding Roosevelt for a moment. Right. Yeah, from that level right. and Churchill. Right. The other three appear to have reached a degree of right. cooperative agreement. Right. Well, one, it's important to understand that the OSS is kind of like a uh, armed services today. They man, train, and equip, and they provide a capability to a theater commander. That's what Donovan was trying to do. Donovan doesn't command anything in the field that I'm aware of. I don't think he may have run some intelligence operations, but he is handing over a, cap a capability to a theater commander such as Eisenhower. When Eisenhower runs North Africa, the OSS already has people there. And Eisenhower is pretty impressed with what the OSS is able to do for him. When he gets to London, this organization, this kind of siege uh, of as I described before, this coalition, special operations headquarters, that already existed as well. So Eisenhower arrives, and it's there, and he likes it. He trusts, he trusts what they're doing. Um, all of that was able to be built because of the political things that the, these, entity needed, these entities needed. The OSS needed to get in the game. MacArthur shut him out of the Western Pacific. Um, and so the opportunity to kind of prove their merit for the war effort was something that Donovan desperately needed. Uh, he sends some people over to the London office. The London office watched these exercises that I described earlier that the British are undergoing. And the British realize they need manpower. And they don't have enough equipment, airlift, or soldiers to be in these Jedburgh teams. And so they ask the, the American OSS officer, can you guys contribute to this? Well, this is a golden opportunity. Uh, Frank Canfield is the officer who's at... at uh, uh, in London at the time for the OSS. He goes back to Washington and he makes this proposal and, and Donovan loves it because he needs to get guys in the theater. And so he, he, even though it will be a joint operation with the British, which may not be exactly what he wants, at least he'll have guys there. So from Donovan's perspective or the OSS perspective, the Jedbergs are a, are a way, are a ticket into the ball game. And they need that to prove their worth in Washington. And so they take it and they contribute 
they recruit guys out of the Army. Uh, there's a couple of Marines. There's one Navy sailor who join in. And you have to be, you know, think of the qualifications. You have to parachute. So you have to be parachute qualified or be willing to be parachute qualified. You have to have some working knowledge of French. And you have to be willing to jump behind the lines. And they'd, they'd put out calls for guys to come at military bases. They'd put out calls for people to come. And a big crowd would show up. And then when they'd list off all these qualifications, the, the folks would kind of melt away. And so they'd, they'd take those folks who spoke French. Uh, and the radio men were even uh, trickier. You have to be a very good radio man. Know your Morse code. Be able to fix the thing when it breaks. Uh, and manage all these things. So... For the United States to be able to come up with the 150 Jedbergs was really hard. You'd think it wouldn't be hard to come up with 150 guys, but it was hard to do. You know, you stress the numbers uh, in your book, and, and it is interesting because, as you say in the begin at the beginning, a lot of us think of World War II as the great industrial age right, or the industrial right, age. Right. And yet when you get down to these irreg irregular operations, right. we're talking little hand 100 right. people. Highly 150 skilled. people. It's not yep. a lot of people. Right, right. But they had to meet all those qualifications yeah. and, above all, be willing to volunteer and to do this, right. to go behind the lines, right. very, very high-risk operations. Right. And so the idea was to form teams consisting of, ideally, somebody from each of the countries, Great Britain, right. U.S., and France. Yeah, actually, in, going into France, there would be a French officer on every team, or an American or Brit. But the French officer was kind of the core, uh, or the central part of the team, and then a radio man from one of the three countries. Uh, the French also, because they're, they're told about this late, they have a tough time finding enough guys uh, to get there in time uh, to maybe brush up on their parachute qualifications and so forth. Um, so that becomes a stretch, too, because they're only notified. You think the invasion is, uh, if you consider the invasion is scheduled for May, they're told about this at the highest levels in February of 44, and the invasion is only three months away. And they've got to, really got to scramble to find guys who are parachute qualified and willing to do this. Um, they do come up with enough. In fact, they, they contribute more officers to the operation than anybody, or more officers and enlisted than, yeah. than anybody. I think one thing to clarify, th there were people who went into these occupied countries, and today we're focusing right. on France, who worked with the resistance, uh, yeah. who helped uh, bring down pilots, downed RAF yeah. or U.S. pilots out over the Pyrenees or wherever, uh -huh. helped them escape. So you had sort of a, a, a steady uh, uh, input of irregular people. But in, in reading the book, it's clear that the, the Jedbergs particularly were looked at as a force that would go in with D-Day. Right. By with right. D-Day, maybe yeah. day after or day before, right. whatever it was. But they were a force meant to go in and then help the resistance in a rather, ma and I, it's hard to say massive, but in various parts right. of France where they felt the Germans were going to be weak, they're going to be retreating, they're right. going to be trying to defend their rear guard action right. and so forth. And, and that was the almost the, a major part of what the yeah. Jedbergs were about, right. was it not? Yes, the, the Jedbergs belonged to Eisenhower. Their coalition from the tactical level all the way to the top, the four-star and then five-star general. So they are his. All these other agents, they're national assets. And that's the way I kind of look at them is, you know, the British are running spies into France. They're running spies into Austria. They're running spies into Norway. And they're doing this on behalf of the British government for British aims, for British purposes. This is what made de Gaulle furious, uh, it's, that's, it's, and that becomes a huge issue. And that's why he liked the Jedberg concept. I, I never found anything where he mentions it, 
but he certainly knew of it. I, I, one of the French uh, soldiers, um, actually it was an American army officer who was a Frenchman, uh, he goes on to the Jedburgh teams and he meets up with, with uh, de Gaulle and de Gaulle says, oh, you're one of those people, fine. Because he knew that he would control that. But uh, an agent that the SOE sent into France for a unilateral mission, he had no say about that. Um, and so this is what um, made him just really furious. And, and this is kind of the gift that Eisenhower has. It's, it's, it's cooked into this that these guys are a coalition asset and there's a Frenchman on the team. And so it didn't have to deal with all this kind of political baggage that as areas in France are becoming liberated and de Gaulle is meeting up with these British spies and he's kicking them out of the country, you know, because he didn't want them there in the first place. They didn't have the authority to be there. Which it was, it, he, he was very interested in the French regaining sovereignty exactly. over their own country. Right, which is, of course, natural, <clears throat> yeah. right? You would, you would want yeah. a Frenchman to have. You touched on de Gaulle. We touched on de Gaulle as being the most junior officer in the uh, field officer, field grade right. officer in the, in the French army. At this point, Eisenhower had never seen a day of combat, had he? I think that's right. He uh, he served as a commander of a uh, unit in the early 30s, if I recall, as lieutenant colonel. He missed the First World War. He was very upset about that. He didn't get his chance in the First World War. Um, and so, yes, when he commands forces in the invasion of North Africa, uh, as one British officer I read about says, this is an American officer nobody would ever heard of. Uh, and this is his first uh, job, really. Um, it... it it's amazing that how he was chosen in, in a lot of ways. And I don't get into this in the book too much, and I, but uh, there's a lot of work done by others, Marshall and so forth, and other senior leaders in the Army of the, ninth, of the 1930s when promotions were terrible. I mean, just going up the rank, just because the slots weren't there. The Army was so small. In fact, Eisenhower tells his son uh, in 1939, I think, or 1938, don't join the Army. There's no way for promotion. And he, in 1940, in February 1940, is considering retiring, and he's lieutenant colonel at the time. And you think, in 1945, he's a five-star general. Uh, it's just astonishing. But the, despite uh, the fact that he couldn't get promoted to colonel, it was because there weren't any slots. When there were slots, he was known among the senior leaders, Marshall and Fox Connor and some of these guys, as a very talented planner and as a man who, who could, uh, was charming, was a good leader, could get along with people. And I think he's got this skill. I think he's one of the only people in my book who gets along with de Gaulle because he just has this affability about him. He gets along with Monty, although they nearly come, to, he almost fires Monty at one point in 19, late 44, but uh, early 45. But uh, he can get along with everybody and he knows that he, his ego is not the most important thing, right? He understands that prosecuting the war is the most important thing. And so with that in the forefront of his mind, he just can get along. And he can take the little barbs from Monty. He can, he can deal with big egos. He, he, uh, his uh, aide one time writes that, oh, gosh, uh, Churchill's coming to visit the headquarters. Wouldn't Winston Churchill think that, that Eisenhower's got plenty to do besides host the prime minister? But... Churchill wants to come, and Eisenhower just says, okay, I guess we have to spend a couple hours explaining things to the man and asking his, uh, or answering his questions and letting him visit um, and getting along with him and so forth. And so even though that Churchill himself, if he was in Eisenhower's place, he wouldn't want a chief of state or chief of government visiting, but 
but Roosevelt just rolls with it, and it's really a gift. It was a gift. You make it clear, certainly, in discussing uh, his overview of the Jedbergs, the Irregulars getting along with the French and Roosevelt. He certainly lives up to his reputation yeah. as a coalition commander. Right. Yeah. One of the things you just touched on a little bit <clears throat> um, is that it was one of the things that sort of impeded the research or made the research doubly difficult is that the people who had been in leadership roles and who, in effect, knew what was going on, left very little behind in the way of good right. records of what we look at the military today. And, and there's, a, there's almost a fixation on doing lessons learned, on doing after-action right. reports and right. so forth. And, and my sense is you ran into very little of that. Yeah. The, the people, the American co-director of the Special Force headquarters underneath uh, Shafe, they pretty much kept their mouth shut until the 1970s when the British officer, uh, Mock, Eric Mockler Ferriman, he writes out some memoirs and gave a couple of public speeches at some low-key events in Britain. But, and those papers are, are what I saw and were able to use. Uh, Colin Gubbins, he pretty much kept quiet. Um, Eisenhower, of course, he... All of this is classified. In fact, the, the Jedberg teams, the American records of the Jedbergs were not declassified until 1979. The British records of the Jedbergs and a lot of the SOEs weren't released until the early 2000s. Um, uh, and the French, they go right out of, to maintain their empire, they leave the Second World War, they go right into Indochina. Uh, they, keep, they keep a very much a combat-oriented mindset. Uh, those two gentlemen, uh, Colonel Haskell, the American co-director of Special Force Headquarters, and Mockler Ferriman, they also kept their mouth shut because now they're in the Cold War. And these might be methods and uh, people that they use to conduct part of the Cold War. In fact, um, I, I've come across recently this notion of stay-behind networks that NATO uses during the Cold War. In fact, Bill Colby at Jedburgh is uh, probably in Rome when he's a station chief in Rome in the 1950s, setting up stay-behind networks for if the communists take over in Italy, that uh, there'll be networks of guys who are willing to wage guerrilla warfare against the newly formed communist government in Italy. In Italy. And they'll be able to do it with um, clandestine weapons and resources provided by the CIA and others. Well, that, uh, and certainly that's one way in which I go back to a question I asked you very early in our interview mm -hmm. Um, our experience of irregular warfare during World War II influenced what we did in a number of instances in the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, this being an example, yeah. the stay-behind networks. Uh, yeah, but, uh, and that's why I think they, they don't talk much about the Jedbergs. There's no grand kind of lessons learned about that activity because they do have to keep it quiet. You know, since you are a scholar and, and teacher and, and deal in these uh, in this subject, and you've taught this subject, to what extent, I'm asking you to generalize, I understand sure. that. To what extent do you think we were able to draw on our experience or fail to draw on our experience in wars like uh, the mm -hmm. Korean War and the Vietnam, right. uh, uh, the Korean police action, I should yeah. say, or the Vietnam War or some of our other yeah. involvements coming up through today, that is the invasion of Iraq and right. our current 
embroilment in the Middle right. East. Now, that's a sweeping right. um, overview, but I think our listeners would be interested in right. your views as somebody who has studied these right. things. Right. Well, that's a very good question. I think we, we failed to learn it because we don't like to think that a guerrilla force has its own political objectives. If we are, if we are supporting uh, the Koreans in uh, what becomes North Korea, um, you know, the South Korean government has its own political objectives. If we are uh, supporting Syrian forces in Syria today, we don't really consider the fact, well, what is their ultimate aim? And how best do our aim, can our aim merge with theirs? And this is the thing that Roosevelt never understood with the Free French, is how does the Free French aim uh, cooperate with ours? And where does it diverge from ours? They never really came to grips with that. And I don't think most, most political leaders don't want to deal with the, the distance between um, or the gap between one nation's political intent uh, by waging war and their own. Uh, Churchill quips, the, the only thing worse than fighting, without, or fighting with allies is fighting without them, right? You'd rather fight with them and have some f- help on your side. But the, the bad thing about that is you do ha- it is a constant negotiation, uh, between allies. And so I think today, what to answer your question, the, the biggest lesson we can learn is not necessarily, uh, I hope people don't read my book and come away with a lot of tactical information about how to set up uh, an SF ODA team or something like this. They should come up with, uh, they should learn about the notion of political intent is unique to that nation or that group. And it's important to understand what that is. And when you understand what it is, then you can understand the pitfalls that you might encounter along the way and where your aims are going to diverge when because ultimately you know you're going to have to make peace and that's when the real arguing often begins is that the is that the uh, Potsdam peace talks or something like that and that's where it's really difficult uh you know Lawrence of Arabia I kind of opened this up in the first the first chapter talking about Lawrence of Arabia and his influence over this I think I'd like readers to take away, too, that Lawrence of Arabia comes away from First World War very disillusioned about the political leadership and what happens in the Middle East. He's been fighting with these guys, hard fighting, painful, awful conditions. And as he tries to help the peace talks, he tries to get the Arabs what he feels they deserve. And the senior levels of the British and the French government just aren't going to tolerate that. And, and he feels that in, my, in some ways, he writes, in fact, that they lost the peace. Yeah. I think they even brought that out in the movie, didn't they? The yes. With they, Peter O'Toole. That, yeah. that is T. Yeah. Lawrence's disillusionment. Exactly. With the end of it. The end and, of that film is, is an amazing film. I've used the end of that movie to teach that very yeah. point in class, is to show that uh, to students and say, what's going on here? You know, they're being... Um, the old men are winning the peace, even though the young men had to win the war. Um, and as the uh, Alec Guinness character says, who's, who's playing the uh, king in the, in the Lawrence of Arabia movie, um, war is won by the virtues of young men, uh, courage and hope for the future. But peace is uh, waged, or peace is won by the vices of old men, mistrust and caution. So the movie uh, gets that point across very well, just like Lawrence does in his own book, where, where the young men were kind of dismissed and the old men made their peace. Yeah, that's a very, very good uh, a reference, I think. Do you think... <clears throat> Let me introduce something we haven't discussed, but just 
get your take on it since we're talking about this kind of warfare, this notion of nation building. Right. That we, that we, have, that we the United right. States, have so often built into our yeah. involvements. That is, right. there's been a great focus, certainly since General Petraeus, with whom you served, yeah. on the nature of counterinsurgency, dealing right. with counterinsurgency. Right. But layered over that, so often in our case, is nation building. Could mm-hmm. you just comment on, 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 the, on the linkage or right. lack of linkage you right. see between those? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of interesting conversations with Afghan cadets about what they thought about the notions of uh, what does liberty mean to you, what does honor mean to you, what does rights mean to you, and so forth. And they would often, the ones who spoke English well enough to kind of comprehend the nature of my question, uh, and Afghan officers as well, would say the same things that you and I might say about freedom and liberty and these kind of lofty goals and so forth. But to them... It operates in a very different way. They may have an English uh, Dari dictionary, but the definitions are different. To them, liberty means that their tribe, the Afghans in this case, that their tribe has the sway and the, and the power to do what it wills, and that the man who runs the tribe, the senior leader, is dispensing favors in a just way that they would see as just. To us, this looks like corruption. To them, that's, that's proper use of authority. And Americans uh, and Westerners frequently just have a tough time understanding that. So when you roll into a country like Iraq or Afghanistan, try to nation build, there's no de Tocqueville there, right? There's no, there's no history of what a civil society is that mirrors ours so that when we layer a government, a political entity on top of it, with representative democracy or whatever form of government that might exist in the West today, that's not something that's in their tradition. And while they might aspire to that, they themselves don't understand what that means. Uh, had some interesting conversations with the head of the law department at the Afghan Military Academy. He was a very learned man, had read uh, Augustine and a lot of these guys, but still, you know, one guy or one officer in an army uh, does not a civil society make. And so while I could have a conversation with him and be very hopeful um, uh, with that particular gentleman, there's just not enough of him around. Uh, I'd like to think that he's still there teaching law to the Afghan cadets. Uh, that was kind of one of the things that we, we and, tried to further along. But that takes generations, really. And as we see now in, in Iraq, the, you mentioned the, the young men, the, the young men winning the war and the old men dividing up the the leftovers, as it were, certainly yeah. are seeing that play out in Iraq with the right. Sykes-Picot line that, that yeah. divided the country right. up being rapidly uh, obliterated right. from the sands. Right. Yeah. Well, let me finish on, on a very current note, if I may. Sure. And having served with General Petraeus uh, and having served in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. in the heart of, of what we've been so involved with in the last decade, more than a decade, yeah. um, <clears throat> And number one, do you feel that, that General Petraeus, who oversaw the last edition of the Army Marine Corps book on irregular warfare, counterinsurgency, right, I think Right, the was, field manual. Do you yeah. feel, number one, did he capture a lot of the thinking that you're reflecting today, that Lawrence might have wanted to capture? Yeah, I think the, the principles and guidance that are in that field manual, you know, he pulls from 
the history of unconventional and counterinsurgency. He's a very well-read man, and the staff and the writers that he had put that together. But the piece that's missing is the lack of trust between, in this case, the President of the United States and General Petraeus. Uh, uh, I've, I've got a chapter coming out in a book that will be released next February about this very thing, is that if the presidents, uh, in this case Karzai and President Obama, are not on board with the counterinsurgency strategy, then you need to come up with a strategy that they'll be on board with. Uh, Petraeus' strategy in Iraq arguably worked because President Bush was behind it, and he would resource it, and he was willing to take the political punishment for the time it would take to bring it about. Uh, it's my view that President Obama clearly is not willing to take the time to bring it about or have the troops there that would be necessary to make it work, at least in a, in a rudimentary fashion. Um, and so with a lack of trust, you can have the greatest strategy in the world, but if the President of the United States is not uh, contributing and not behind that strategy, it's going to fail. Okay, well, I want you to commit to coming back here yeah. after you've yeah. done that last chapter so we can okay. pick up where we've been. Okay. And the last thing is, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least bring up um, what is our bete noir today, and that's, that's the, the ISIS, yeah. the so-called ISIL or Islamic State or, right. or whatever you want right. to call it. And I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that phenomenon and mm -hmm. how we are opposing it right now. Yeah. Well, um, Mark Twain said, if you don't read the papers, you're uninformed. If you do read the papers, you're misinformed. And so this misinformation about ISIS is all I have to go on, obviously. All I know about ISIS is what I read in the papers. Um, but it seems to me that I did read a quote from a free Syrian army fighter that we were ostensibly supporting is that he was frustrated with the United States because he didn't know what our aims were. And that this was debilitating to, to that group of uh, maquis, if you will, for, for that part of Syria, is that he didn't understand what the United States was trying to achieve. Um, this is very understandable. Uh, there would be maquis in southern France in 1944 who would say the same thing about the United States. We don't understand what you're trying to achieve. Uh, it's very important for the President of the United States to be clear about what our intentions are. To, to speak not only to the American people, but to that, to that poor guy who's lost his family, his house is blown up, and he's running around eastern Syria with an AK-47 and hopefully enough bullets, and, and he's fighting for his house, right for him. This is a war for all the marbles. And if, the, if there's weapons and cash and fuel and, and advisors coming in from, from other locations to support him, well, the real question is, support him to do what? Sooner or later, you need to be able to answer that question. And I don't know that we've answered that question to that freedom fighter in Syria. No, I think that's a, a very good comment. Ben, thank you so much for joining You're us welcome. today. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Dr. Ben Jones, who's currently the uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Dakota State University in Madison, South Dakota and the author of Eisenhower's Guerrillas, The Jedbergs, The Maquis, and The Liberation of France. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. It was great to be here. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.